0: Hello and welcome to the September 2016 episode of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me as always is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. First up, New York's highest court overturned the noxious Allison d precedent that denied standing to parents without a biological or abductive connection to a child. 25 years later, that Brightline rule will no longer automatically deny any chance of custody or visitation. Can you tell us about it, Art?
1: Yeah, this was much awaited, overturning a 25-year precedent, yep. uh, but the court didn't go as far as many people were hoping it would. Uh, It's an important decision because New York is a big state, but in fact New York has been a bit of a backwater on this issue for a long time. Many other states, including our neighbors of Connecticut and New Jersey, have been much more open to custody and visitation claims by the former uh, same-sex partners of a child's biological parent. Uh, So the issue here uh, was actually a combination of two cases, but both were similar in their outset. They're same-sex couples, decided to have kids together. They're both women. Uh, so this involves donor insemination. And uh, in both cases, the women had agreements ahead of time governing uh, what they were planning to do, that they were going to have a child jointly, that they were going to raise them as co-parents. Uh, the dates are somewhat significant in these cases because they all predate marriage equality in New York. Uh in some cases, people could have married in other states, but it wasn't clear that New York would recognize those marriages. Uh, same-sex parents uh, could go through adoption proceedings. Uh, it's been uh, the case for since the, the mid-'90s that New York has allowed a same-sex partner to adopt uh, their partner's child with their consent. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, these cases sometimes arise before the parties have gotten around to doing adoptions or uh, the parties have not undertaken adoptions because that involves going through home studies and expenses and court appearances and delays. Uh, And sometimes the relationship of same-sex couple deteriorates sharply after a child is born because disputes arise about the child. Uh, And so that gets in the way of having an adoption proceeding. So we still have, even in in our current age of marriage equality, a situation where a fair number of same-sex couples are raising children together without having undertaken the formal steps of getting married or having an adoption. So uh, I think the key thing here is that the membership of the Court of Appeals changed so drastically in in the past few years. Uh, And I have to say thank God for that mandatory retirement, uh, which really changed the court. Uh, The court was moderately conservative in the early 90s when they decided Allison D. versus Virginia M. The current court of seven members consists of six appointed by Andrew Cuomo and one holdover from the Pataki years. Uh, And uh, one of the uh, Cuomo appointees was appointed relatively recently and didn't take part in this case. So we ended up with a six-member panel and a five-to-one vote on... uh, on the reasoning, but a six-to-nothing vote on the outcome. Uh, because uh, even our Republican appointee holdover on the court, Judge Piggott, agreed with the result. He just would have reached it through different means. That's
0: interesting. Judge Garcia is actually a Republican as well. He uh. used to be the U.S. attorney for the Southern District. But he actually clerked for Judge Kay the year of Allison D. So oh. I'm wondering if he's been –
1: He may have written the dissent yeah. you know, or, or participated. But uh,
0: in. interesting. But yeah.
1: Yeah. But uh, so I was referring not to the political party of the judges, but of the governors you're who right, appointed you're them. Right. Yep. Uh, so it's, it is a uh, pretty liberal bench now, uh, the New York Court of Appeals. But they still made it a narrow decision. Uh, they're not going to automatically accord standing whenever a uh, same sex partner is going to raise a claim. They said all we have to do in this case is decide the cases before us. And the cases before them had certain common factors. Uh, that they have now established as a prerequisite under this decision. One is that the parties have had an agreement before the child is born that they're going to raise the child together as parents and that the uh, biological parent is uh, facilitating and encouraging the development of the parent-child relationship with his or her partner.
0: Although it's unclear what constitutes an agreement.
1: Yeah, I it, mean, a lot of these things are formal? not in writing. Right. You know? well, I, I don't I'm think sure there's standard. a
0: lot of evidence in these cases that yeah. points to an agreement, right. but I think there's going to be cases that might there not be, be so clear. There yeah. will
1: be issues. Uh, there will be issues. And also, uh, the fact of an agreement has to be proved by clear and convincing evidence, which is a uh, more difficult standard to meet than the normal preponderance standard in civil litigation. Uh, and I think that has to do with the court's concern about the constitutional rights of the biological parent. Uh, the Supreme Court has recognized fundamental rights in biological parents regarding care and control of their child and decisions about with whom the child has contact. So the court wants clear and convincing evidence that, in fact, that right has been essentially waived, at least in part, by making a agreement that's provable by clear and convincing evidence with their co-par- uh, the co-parent who their, was their partner. Uh, these cases come up. They're no longer partners. Uh, so... It's an important decision. It doesn't go as far as some other states have gone. Uh, It leaves for future determination situations like uh, same-sex couples uh, who are living together with the children that one or both of them had from prior relationships. And let's say a parental relationship develops with the child over time and there's no formal agreement. This decision wouldn't uh, take care of uh, standing for visitation or custody after that relationship breaks up. Yeah. Well, so there's still issues to be decided. From
0: some folks, that they're they're happy, the court didn't adopt a specific test because they think if you get a the, you know a, a right the right judge now at the family court um, who might read this to say you know we've. We've concluded this decision works, and but we didn't. We're not saying that other situations don't work either yet. Right. So you might. It's going to play out for a while. And
1: it's important that uh, they picked up on Judge Kaye's arguments from mm-hmm. her dissent, that the problem with the standard that was adopted by the Court of Appeals in Allison D, uh, that in order to have standing, you have to be either uh, biologically or legally related to the child. Uh, she said the problem with this is that it overlooks the ultimate policy behind standing in, uh, behind uh, visitation and custody law, and that is what is in the best interest of the child. And an increasing knowledge about the psychological bonds and the importance of them for the development of the child. Uh, and uh, she, uh, Judge uh, Abdus Salam, who wrote the opinion, uh, not only uh, quoted at length from Judge Kay, but she also noted that in the Deborah H. case, Uh, of a few years ago, when the court actually reaffirmed the Allison D. decision, uh, there was a, uh, a, I believe it was a concurrence uh, by Chief Judge Lippman and uh, Judge Siparik, in which they pointed out that the Allison D. ruling had, quote, indeed caused the widespread harm to children predicted by Judge Kay's dissent. Uh, So having recognized that, the Court of Appeals has given tools to lower court judges to deal with situations that don't fall precisely in this area. And I, I would think that it would be a logical extension of uh, of this decision to uh, look at other scenarios that don't quite fit this, where mm-hmm. it is clear that there's a parent-child relationship that's developed and that it would not be in the best interest of the child to cut off.
0: And I thought the concurring opinion by, by Judge Pigott that you mentioned was interesting because he... I was uh, – before I read what he wrote, I was interested to see how he got to the result without overruling Allison D. And he, you know, relies on this extraordinary circumstances yes. exception. Which is, in fact,
1: overruling part of Allison D. Yeah. Because in the Allison D. case, they held that just because you have a same-sex couple who use donor insemination to have a child together – doesn't constitute an extraordinary uh, situation where you would create an exception to the normal rule. Now he's saying, well, maybe we should create an exception to the normal rule for that kind of case. But in a certain sense, he may have just been speaking in the context of a transitional period in the law, when by the curiosity of timing, people fell into this gap. Between the time when same sex couples started getting married elsewhere and some jurisdictions had domestic partnership or civil unions, and uh, adoption was a difficulty, and you know, so you put it all together, and it looks like you can make an exceptional or extraordinary circumstances argument.
0: Um, although the folks who who litigated the case said to me we were not aware there was an extraordinary circumstances exception we it certainly had never been uh, applied before this to to a well couple in this situation. That's because the court had ruled it out right. in Allison D. So it, yeah. it was just sort of an interesting way for him to get there without uh, without overruling Allison D. Right. Um, but I do want to give a quick shout out to the lawyers who litigated it, uh, Susan Summer from Lambda Legal, but also. Brett Figleski, who I work with at the, at the Bar Association, and um, Meg Camby and Caroline Kraus brown um, Very proud of all of them for the work they did on this. And uh, we look forward to seeing how this plays out, as I'm sure we'll discuss in future podcasts. All right, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll discuss new decisions on the always pressing issue of the coverage of Title VII. We are back discussing the continuing continuing development of the law concerning whether Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 covers discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. We unfortunately saw two setbacks over the summer. I will start with the first one, which I wrote about for this month's issue Mm of Law Notes. Uh, In Hively versus Ivy Tech Community College, a three-judge panel of the Seventh Circuit rejected the current position of the EEOC that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964's prohibition on firing or refusing to hire an employee because of sex extends to discrimination based on sexual orientation. This was the first uh, federal appellate court to squarely address the July 2015 Baldwin versus Fox EEOC ruling that Title VII does indeed cover uh, such discrimination. And it was a really interesting read, as unhappy as many people are with the result, um, Judge Rovner, Alana Rovner, on the Seventh Circuit wrote a 42-page opinion that really dissected uh, this issue very, uh, very thoroughly. Um, Kimberly Hively, just to go through the facts of the case, uh, is a, was a part-time adjunct professor at a community college uh, in South Bend, Indiana, for 14 years. She alleges that the school repeatedly de- denied her promotion to full-time employment and eventually terminated her simply because she's a lesbian, even though she never had any negative evaluations. There is actually a 2012 local human rights ordinance uh, protecting uh, sexual orientation, discrimination, uh, but it exempts state universities. And this community college is actually part of a chain of uh, state-run community colleges. So that uh, is no help to her. And as many people remember from the Rifra Indiana, debate last year, there's no statewide law covering uh, LGBT uh, employees in the state of Indiana. So she uh, probably correctly felt that she uh, only had federal law as a possible uh, means of redress here. So she went through the EEOC process and the uh, federal district court process pro se without any representation uh, and struck out last March uh, at the district court level who the district court judge granted uh, the school's motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim. Uh, Lambda Legal became aware of her case at that point and then took on her representation uh, for the appeal of the Seventh Circuit. And we got the decision on July 28th. And uh, interesting panel of judges on the Seventh Circuit. It was Judge Rovner, Judge Bauer, and Judge Ripple. Um, All three are appointed by Republican presidents, including uh, Gerald Ford appointee. So he (laughs) is uh, got to be elderly at this point. Um, But all three... Uh, felt that despite uh, all of the development in the law in this area in the past few years, especially the the uh, Baldwin decision, that there was just so much overwhelming uh, contrary precedent in the Seventh Circuit that squarely said this is not covered. Uh, they they felt that uh, all the developments in the law and as, as much sense as it might make uh, was not enough to, to change change course.
1: Yeah, this is this is our recurring problem now. We're uh, in certain circuits we have established precedent on this issue in other circuits it hasn't been addressed so we've made uh, quite a bit of progress before district courts in some of the circuits because of this lack of uh, of circuit authority but uh, in this case uh, you know they, they really, a three judge panel can't overturn circuit yep. authority they, they need to go on bank to do that and I believe that Lambda Legal is, has asked them to go on bank yep. so uh, this may get a, a, a read in but as you mentioned, Judge Rovner, this is really extraordinary. There's a there's a part A and a part B, yep. and the first part of the opinion they say we're bound by circuit precedent. The second part of the opinion they say, but circuit presidents is sort of ridiculous. You know, we're out of sync here, yeah. and the EEOC made some good arguments, and you know, it's time to debate this. Yep.
0: And she talks about so as we've talked about many times on the podcast, there's the Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins 1989 Supreme Court decision that uh, first found cognizable these um, arguments that gender nonconformity or sex stereotyping as the basis for something adverse happening at work um, are covered as being illegal under Title VII's uh, sex discrimination uh, provision. Um, And Judge Rovner says the idea that the line between gender nonconformity and sexual orientation claims is arbitrary and unhelpful has been smoldering for some time, but the EEOC's decision in Baldwin threw fuel on the flames. Uh, And then she she then notes that the district courts, which are the frontline experimenters in the laboratories of difficult legal questions, are beginning to to question the doctrinaire distinction between gender nonconformity discrimination and sexual orientation discrimination, And coming up short on rational answers. And she even notes that the EEOC, you know, had personally mentioned the Seventh Circuit as being a circuit that just sort of cites prior precedent when these cases come up but doesn't really explain why that precedent's still good or still makes sense. Um, And she talks about how the fact is the odd state of affairs in the law under the current Seventh Circuit interpretation of Title VII is that gender-conforming gay or lesbian or bisexual people um have less job protection than uh folks who might be more boundary pushing in dress and behavior um and there's a paradoxical legal landscape she says uh today in which a person can be married in any state now under Obergefell and then fired on Monday for just that act in other words we are left with a body of law that values the wearing of pants and earrings over marriage
1: yeah it's a it's a strange situation and uh Ultimately, we have to get this issue up before the Supreme Court unless uh, a massive change on the congressional front results in passage of the Equality Act, which would moot a lot of this Mm -hmm. debate. But uh, barring that, and it seems unlikely, even if the Democrats were to carry the White House and the Senate this year, uh, the chances of carrying uh, the House of Representatives are slim, and even if that was carried by a slight margin, Uh, As long as the Republicans remain firmly opposed in the Senate and have more than 40 votes there, they could filibuster it. Although whether they would want to is an interesting question. Uh, It may be that the movement of public opinion against anti-gay discrimination is so strong in this country now, at least when it applies to things like the workplace and housing rights and the kinds of stuff that's covered by Mm -hmm. Title VII, Perhaps the Republican Party will change its view on that, but many, many Republicans are just ideologically opposed, not just to uh, employment discrimination protection for LGBT people, but in general are hostile to employment discrimination right. law. So you know we've got to take that into account in, in making predictions, and uh, as a result, it seems that the judicial approach is more likely to be fruitful.
0: Uh, but of course, at the m- at the moment, we still have an eight member Supreme Court, right. and Lambda is probably appropriately trying to avoid going to the Supreme Court in the short term because of that situation. So they have uh, filed a motion for rehearing and rehearing on banc um, to see if they can't get a, a contrary decision out of the on banc uh, Seventh Circuit. Um, so that's that story. Um, Uh, There's uh, another interesting development on the Title VII front uh, from uh, August and uh, another setback, unfortunately, where, uh, for better or for worse, one of the worst fears of LGBT advocates since the Supreme Court's Hobby Lobby decision came to fruition. Can you tell us about it?
1: Yeah, the Hobby Lobby decision, as people will remember, uh, the Supreme Court said that corporations are people. That is, at least for purposes of uh, not only the First Amendment, but the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which Congress passed and said that, uh, that the federal government may not put an undue burden on a person's free exercise of religion. Well, the Supreme Court, uh, perpetuating the legal fiction that has existed in this country since the 19th century, that corporations for purposes of the Bill of Rights and various other constitutional protections are people, decided that uh, by a five-to-four vote that under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, corporations are people. And uh, at least in that particular case, Hobby Lobby, which is a big, big operation, they have hundreds of outlets all over the country, but it's a family-owned business, basically. Uh, A closely held corporation, uh, relatively small controlling group who are all, we are told, devout Catholics and who were opposed to uh, birth control and abortion and who protested that under the Affordable Care Act, they were going to be required to subsidize things that violated their religious beliefs, and so they didn't want to cover women's uh, uh, contraception. And the Supreme Court upheld their right to refuse and uh, said that they could uh, raise religious objections. Now, in her dissenting opinion... Justice Ginsburg said, well, this could tear a big hole in anti-discrimination law. All an employer would have to say is they have religious objections uh, to employing particular people because of their religion or because of their race or their sex, but based on the employer's religious beliefs. And Justice Alito poo-pooed those fears in his majority opinion. He said no one would claim that Rifro would privilege an employer to uh, discriminate based on race as prohibited by Title VII. But he didn't mention any of the other Title VII categories, and uh, in fact, based on religious beliefs, one could hazard the guess that someone have religious objections to women doing certain kinds of jobs, or men doing certain kinds of jobs, or as is not unpredictable, gay or transgender people, and so we have this case uh, arising in the uh, Eastern District of Michigan in Michigan. uh, judge sean cox ruled on august 18th that a funeral home that discharged a transgender funeral director because she wanted to dress according to the employer's dress code as a woman Uh, and the employer regards her as a man and the employer says he has religious objections to allowing a man to dress as a woman while working for that funeral home uh and uh the interesting thing is, Judge Cox goes through his analysis on the summary judgment motion. He had previously rejected a motion to dismiss Yeah, this case. I remember we,
0: we covered it in the podcast. Yeah.
1: And so he, he went through and he said, clearly, if you leave out the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was not discussed in the prior decision on the motion to dismiss, it was irrelevant on that motion because it provides a defense. And on a motion to dismiss, you don't take into account the employer defenses. You just take into account... What is alleged in the complaint and whether that standing on itself, if believed to be true, would uh, support a uh, a claim of a violation of the statute. So uh, in this case, uh, he sort of doubles down on that prior decision. And he says, if you leave out the Riffer defense, then we should be deciding for the plaintiff, Amy Stevens, in this case. She's got a clear Title VII violation. In the Sixth Circuit, he says, in the Sixth Circuit... Unlike some other circuits, uh, we have strong precedent that says that mandating dress codes for employees that are based on sex stereotypes violates Title VII. Uh, So he says clearly this would be a win for Amy Stevens. But two factors. One, the employer raises the Religious Freedom Restoration Act defense. And secondly, this case was brought by the EEOC, not by Ms. Stevens. Uh, She filed charged with the EEOC it found probable cause and at that point the EEOC can go in one of two directions they can either file their own lawsuit on behalf of the charging party but in the name of the United States the case will be EEOC versus rather than Amy Stevens versus or they can issue a right to sue letter and say to her we find merit to your case in 90 days you can within 90 days you can file a complaint in district court uh, and uh, maybe we'll file an amicus brief or something. Uh, so, or you can introduce our letter, our probable cause letter. Uh, so this case happened to come up at a time when the EEOC has now targeted as one of its litigation strategies to establish its interpretation of Title VII in the courts to bring good cases. So they brought this case and the religious argument was raised for the first time on the summary judgment motion and not, uh, not coincidentally, uh, the uh, defendant, the R.G. and G.R. Harris Funeral Homes, got new counsel. Alliance Defending Freedom stepped in, the Christian Public Interest yes, don't Law Don't be firm.
0: confused by the name.
1: Yes, it's, it's the Alliance Defending the Freedom to Discriminate on the Basis <laughs> yes. of Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. That's their full name. <laughs> uh, so uh, they stepped in, and they raised this RIFRA argument. And under RIFRA, if the court finds, as alleged by the defendant that the EEOC's enforcement of the statute would impose an undue burden or a significant burden on uh, the employer's uh, free exercise of religion, then the employer has a defense, unless the EEOC can show that, in fact, the approach it's taking was absolutely necessary to achieve a compelling state interest. Now, even if you concede the EEOC has a compelling state interest... To combat gender identity discrimination, which is not the easiest argument to make, uh, but let's let's concede that is this the narrowest way, the least restrictive alternative to impose on the employer? And here, Judge Cox got a little creative. He said, "Well, the EEOC never tried to negotiate with this funeral home about some compromise, because uh, Ms. Stevens says I have transitioned." I am female, I should be able to dress as a woman. And under the dress code, women are required to wear skirts or dresses. And uh, men are required to wear a regular business suit. And I'm not going to wear a business suit, I'm a woman now. And I want to dress according to the dress code. And Judge Cox says, well, the EEOC could have negotiated a compromise because, in fact, during discovery in this case, the employer, Mr. Rost, was asked, well, would you have objections to her wearing a pantsuit? You know, maybe revising your dress code to allow transgender employees to wear a pantsuit. And he said, I wouldn't have an objection as long as she's wearing pants. If she's wearing a skirt, that's my problem. And Judge Cox says, come on, EEOC. <laughs> Let's get real here. She wants the job. Is she, wi- is she willing to compromise? Can this be negotiated out? But the EEOC was taking an all or nothing position. She has to be allowed to dress the way women are supposed to dress under the dress code. And Judge Cox says, well, isn't that sort of contradictory because you're, you're bringing this case as a sex stereotyping case? Because within the Sixth Circuit, the precedent isn't exactly an echo of the EEOC's position. The EEOC's position is gender identity discrimination is necessarily sex discrimination. The alternative argument is that it's sex stereotyping because the discrimination against transgender people is because of their failure to conform to what the employer expects someone identified at birth as male to do in terms of dressing and names and everything else. Uh, So the court says what the EEOC is doing with their all-or-nothing position here is they're trying to enforce sex stereotyping. They're saying that she has to be allowed to wear a dress. Well, that's sex stereotyping. Why should a woman have to be Allowed to wear a dress. You know, in fact the whole dress code is sex stereotyping. And uh an interesting another aspect of the case, during the investigation of the charge, they turned up the fact that in fact the employer provides the suits for the male employees and the women were told to go out and get a dark dress. (laughs) Yeah, you know, they weren't helped at all on the financial <laughs> so end. So you may not be and the so, most progressive employer right, in the so, world. So the EEOC added a charge of sex discrimination uh, because they uh, provided financial assistance for men to comply with the dress code but not women. Well, they responded to that by changing their policy, and now they subsidize women in, in buying clothing that complies with the dress code. Uh, and the court said, well, that really shouldn't have been part of this case, in the first case, because that's not what this charging party was complaining about <laughs> She would have been happy if they let her buy her own dresses. And, you know, that would probably be the next stage right. charge. But they felt that that hadn't. So that, that part of the case fell out as well from uh, Judge Cox. So uh, this one is going to probably go on appeal to yeah, the 6th I mean, to the we were just talking
0: record. about the odd state of the law as in the other ways Title Seven is interpreted. But it seems to me an odd, a very odd state of affairs that you get a different outcome if the EEOC decides to take up your case versus whether you right. find a private attorney.
1: Yeah, this is the other point that's very important. They said that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is a limitation on the enforcement powers of the government. And it doesn't apply, according to Sixth Circuit precedent, it doesn't apply to private litigation. It doesn't apply to a case where a former employee is suing her former employer for discrimination. Uh, And the court mentions that the Seventh Circuit has a similar precedent. So there we have it in the Midwest. Uh, We have an established precedent in two federal circuits that an employer may raise a refer defense against the EEOC, but not against a private litigant. And I'm wondering, I'm not sure how this would turn out, if Amy Stevens had brought her own case, but the EEOC had filed an amicus brief, would that have triggered the right of the employer to raise the Riffer defense? I think probably not, but who knows? But,
0: I mean, isn't, that's, uh, it seems to me we're going to, if that's the true, we're going to have different bodies of law develop whether or not the EEOC is the plaintiff or not. I mean, it, right,
1: Shouldn't Title VII mean the same thing? <laughs> yeah. But Sean Cox, Judge Cox says, well, it does mean the same thing. Because I ruled in the first part of my opinion that the EEOC is right. There's a violation of Title VII. The next step is looking at the affirmative defense of RIFRA. And that only applies to government-initiated actions. To me, the logic of that is that the private plaintiff would be suing to enforce a public right under Title VII. That is, the employer's obligation under Title VII doesn't arise out of the employment contract or the employment relationship. It arises out of a statute passed by Congress and so it seems to me the issue should be the same regardless of the plaintiff is, as long as they're enforcing a public right.
0: All Strange. right. Uh, if your head is spinning, uh, get ready for the next segment. Uh, we will take another short break, and when we return, we'll shift to the similar issue of whether Title IX covers gender identity and major developments in several federal lawsuits across the United States. All right, we are back to discuss uh, the three big developments in the red hot legal struggle to get transgender students covered or stop them from being covered, uh, depending on the lawsuit, under the sex discrimination provision of Title IX of the Education Amendments Act. Uh, Maybe we should start with the Supreme Court stay, Art.
1: Okay, we'll start with the Supreme Court. And this has a little backstory. Those of you who have listened to past podcasts are are aware of the Gavin Grimm case against the Gloucester County School Board in Virginia. Uh, Gavin Grimm is going into his senior year. Uh, Gavin was identified female at birth, has transitioned, but of course, because uh, sex reassignment surgery is not available for minors, uh, Gavin has not had sex reassignment surgery, but has had hormone treatment and presents as male. And insisted that uh he should be allowed to use men's restroom facilities at his high school uh he did so for a little while uh but then parents complained and some other students complained and the school board did an emergency session and they ended up passing a rule that you could only use the uh, restroom consistent with your birth certificate uh and uh The choice for Gavin was either use the girls' restroom, which he felt pretty uncomfortable about, going into the girls' restroom dressed as a boy. Uh, uh, He couldn't use the boys' restroom. Mm -hmm. And there was a gender-neutral restroom in the nurse's office, which was not always convenient. You know know how it is in high school. You're changing classes. You have a few minutes between classes. You run to the bathroom. Well, he had to run all the way to the nurse's office. He was going to use that one. And he said that that was like labeling him as different. Uh, So he brought this lawsuit, and uh, the federal district judge dismissed it originally, uh, at least dismissed the Title IX claim. There was also an equal protection claim, which the judge reserved judgment on at that time. Uh, So the judge had dismissed the Title IX claim. It went to the Fourth Circuit, and the Fourth Circuit ruled on April 19th of this year that the district judge should have deferred to the Education Department's interpretation of Title IX. And the Education Department, relatively recently in reaction to these new cases involving transgender high school students, had come out with, uh, at first it was letters in particular litigation. Uh, It ultimately resulted in a guidance that was sent out to all the school systems in the country uh, jointly under the... uh, under the heading of the Justice Department and the Education Department interpreting Title IX to cover gender identity discrimination and to require schools to allow students and staff to use restroom facilities consistent with their gender identity. Uh, So the court said that the statute and the regulations under the statute were ambiguous as to this question. The statute just simply forbids sex discrimination Uh, The regulations allow schools to have separate restroom facilities for men and women, but does not address the question of how to deal with transgender people. So as to that, the Fourth Circuit said there is an ambiguity. When there is an ambiguity, the agency can adopt an interpretation to deal with the ambiguity. It just has to be consistent with the overall policy of the statute. It has to be a reasonable interpretation of the statute. Uh, So the Fourth Circuit uh, it was a two-to-one decision. The Fourth Circuit said, first of all, we find the statutory and regulatory situation ambiguous. So that sets up under Supreme Court precedence. That sets up a situation for the agency to answer the question in a way that is a reasonable interpretation of the statute. And we feel that this is a reasonable interpretation. It's not necessarily the only interpretation. Uh, you could have a different interpretation. But that's not for us to decide as a court. We, as a matter of administrative law, we just decide whether it's reasonable. And if so, the court should defer to it. So on that basis, they sent it back to Judge Dumar in the district court, uh, saying you've got to defer to the agency. So set down for trial the question of whether this violates Title IX. It shouldn't be dismissed. Uh, But in the meantime, Grimm had said, uh, you know, by now it's the summer, and he says school's going to be starting up again in August. Uh, can I please have a preliminary injunction so I can use restroom facilities consistent with my gender identity during my senior year in high school? And Judge Dumar was willing to accommodate him and, and issued the preliminary injunction. Uh, the district immediately asked for a stay. Judge Dumar rejected it. The Fourth Circuit rejected it. The Fourth Circuit on Bank rejected it. Uh, so the school district uh, petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court for a stay. They don't want this injunction to go into effect. Uh, and the Supreme Court, of course, is shorthanded. We have eight justices, uh, four appointed by Democrats, four appointed by Republicans. Uh, it takes five votes to stay a lower court order. Uh, to uh, the surprise of nobody, Ju- Justices Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan have indicated they would have denied this application. But the uh, remaining four Republican appointees on the court wanted it, and Justice Breyer, a Democratic appointee was willing to accommodate them. Uh, he he said in a very short memorandum uh, attached to the announcement of the stay that he had done this as a courtesy. Uh, he didn't spell out what he meant by that. Well, it, it, but it, yeah, yeah, as you said he, he cited a case in which uh, the Republicans had not extended this courtesy to the Democrats, which involved the execution of somebody. Yes,
0: he's he's a strong proponent of you know, probably eliminating the death penalty altogether and yeah. uh, has, you know, wanted to to act more aggressively in some of the cases that have come before the court in that area.
1: Yeah, so it, w- it was sort of interesting. So what this means is that the preliminary injunction is stayed at least until the court announces its uh, decision on a cert petition, which was just filed at the end of August by the school district. Uh, they've asked, they've filed a petition for cert asking the court to review the fourth circuits uh, decision on deferral to the agency interpretation and if you look at the cert petition it is framed very much as an administrative law question it's not asking the court except as like the third question down uh, to opine on the merits of whether the timeline covers this uh, they're focused primarily on first whether there's ambiguity in the statute and secondly uh, on whether the court, the Supreme Court precedent under which the Fourth Circuit acted should be retained because they point out that su- several justices in past cases have raised the question whether this is appropriate, whether it is undue delegation to the agency uh, to allow it to really make new law here. Uh, I mean, the, the, the argument uh, on behalf of the school district is that when the agency comes out and says that you have to allow transgender people to use this restroom, they're really making a new legal rule. And this is echoed in some of the other lawsuits we're going to be talking about, the idea that in order to do this, the agency has to actually promulgate a regulation using the pre, the Administrative Procedure Act process, which is time-consuming and which is subject to judicial review directly in the courts of appeals. Uh, so they're really trying to, and I think this is their way of positioning it in such a way as to get the court to grant the petition, to make it sound like it's really an administrative law case. Uh, so it might attract the attention, not only of the conservatives on the court, but the liberals as well. Uh, so I think it's it likely is, they're going to take the case. It's, it's possible that they'll grant it. Now, if they deny it, Gavin Grimm can start using the men's mm-hmm. room uh, at uh, the boys' bathroom at his high school. Uh, the opinion didn't even address the question of locker room facilities, which is a hotly argued one, because it seems Mr. Grimm has been excused from phys ed. Uh, so he's, he's not using any locker room. Uh, but if they grant the petition, argument won't be held till sometime in the winter. And then a decision won't come out until sometime in the spring, it could be that Gavin Grimm will lose his entire senior year in high school right. over this in yep. terms of uh, where he can, which facilities he can use, which yep. would be unfortunate. On the other hand, it could result ultimately in a victory for the Education Department and the Justice Department.
0: And uh, transgender students.
1: But that will depend on who gets appointed to fill the Scalia vacancy okay. and on whether there are any other vacancies. So, you know, so much hinges on contingencies that we cannot foresee.
0: Right. <laughs> But uh, the the decision to grant this stay led to dis- uh, was something that was heavily relied on by this judge uh, in the let's see west northern district of Texas right. Wichita division
1: Wichita Falls
0: who uh, who is a big fan of nationwide injunctions against the Obama administration. Yes,
1: this is uh, Reed O'Connor. Reed O'Connor. Reed O'Connor. This is forum shopping with a vengeance. Uh, Ken Paxton, the Attorney General of Texas, has had great success before Reed O'Connor, but the only way he can make sure that he gets before Reed O'Connor is to file in the Wichita Falls Division of the Northern District of Texas. See, the Northern District Court of Texas is not located in Wichita Falls. They just have an extension courtroom there because the Northern District is so big geographically, and uh, people would have to travel just too far. Uh, to get to a larger metropolitan area in the district. So there is a courtroom up there, uh, probably in the post office or something, and Judge Judge O'Connor sort of rides circuit. He goes up there a few days a week or something, and he deals with the cases up there. So uh, what Paxton does is he finds uh, a school district somewhere within the vicinity of Wichita Falls, that is willing to be a, a co-plaintiff here, and he put together a coalition of states that were, are unhappy about the Education Department's decision, and they filed the case, State of Texas against the United States, in the Wichita Falls Division, so it would be assigned to Judge O'Connor, and then he files a motion for a preliminary injunction to bar enforcement by the Department of Education and the Department of Justice and any other agency that might be enforcing Title IX. And I think they're also bringing into uh, question Title Seven here as well, although well, it's uncertain how far this this uh, preliminary injunction extends because it only references Title IX, but it mentions other agencies. It's really weird. Uh, but at any rate, on August 21st, Judge O'Connor said, look, the Supreme Court has stayed the Fourth Circuit, which means this may be in play at the Supreme Court. So it's a good idea for me to tell all the agencies of the federal government that might have any enforcement authority over Title IX that they can't enforce it until this case is decided on the merits. So the Supreme Court issues a dispositive decision. So he issued this and thus encouraged uh, Mr. Paxton organized an amicus brief that he filed in the Carcaño case... Uh, which we discuss next, which is in the Middle District of, New, of North Carolina before Judge Schroeder. Uh, Judge Schroeder has issued an injunction on August 26th against the uh, defendants in, or one of the defendants in that case, the Carcano case. It's, it's styled Corcano against McCrory, but the three plaintiffs in the case, which is not uh, class action, it's just on behalf of three I think uh, one of them is an employee of the University of North Carolina, and two are students there, Mm -hmm. graduate students. Uh, There are transgender people who, under HB2, the North Carolina law that was passed this past spring, uh, would not be allowed to use the restrooms consistent with their gender identity. And so they're challenging it under Title IX, and I think they, they also have constitutional claims there. And they sought a preliminary injunction with school opening, starting again for the fall. They want to be able to use the restrooms while the case is pending, because trial had been preliminarily set for later in the fall. And uh, Judge Schroeder said, look, North Carolina's in the Fourth Circuit. I'm sort of bound by that Fourth Circuit decision. Even though the Supreme Court has stayed the preliminary injunction that Judge Dumar issued, that doesn't affect the Fourth Circuit's opinion. There's a cert petition on file to review it, but as of now, it's the law in the Fourth Circuit. So on that basis, I have to say that these plaintiffs have a likely success on the merits under the case law of the Fourth Circuit. And looking at the other uh, tests that you look at for a preliminary injunction, they all seem to be easily met. Uh, In fact, the university was taking the position that they're not enforcing HB2 anyway. Uh, The president of the university pointed out that HB2 doesn't have any enforcement provisions. And so it really would be a question of uh, rousting out someone from the sheriff to arrest someone for trespassing in the wrong restroom or something like that. But there's there's no formal enforcement mechanism. And there's no penalty exerted on the University of North Carolina if they don't enforce it. They're just told that they're supposed to have this policy. Uh, so uh, Judge Schroeder issued his preliminary injunction, and immediately Mr. Paxton from Texas and a bunch of his fellow state uh, attorney generals, they run in there with an amicus brief Urging that this injunction be stayed, because the Supreme Court stayed the for, the uh, Dumar Judge Dumar's injunction against the Gloucester School District in Virginia. So it's one big mess. Mm. There's also a case pending in Nebraska, and I assume they are going to file for a preliminary injunction. Oh,
0: too. and uh, Ken Paxton has filed another lawsuit in the Northern District of Texas challenging the HHS non-discrimination rule. So right. look out for another probable injunction there.
1: Most likely, most likely. So uh, we're going to see a lot of litigation on the interpretation of sex discrimination in federal laws, whether it's Title VII or the Fair Housing Act or Title IX or the Affordable Care Act. I think what they're challenging there is the Affordable Care Act non-discrimination Yeah, and
0: HHS, uh, you know, has promulgated a very strong rule uh, covering gender identity and... uh, so th- I don't think they have an administrative law, the same administrative law claim there, because I think there was an f- official rulemaking right. process. But, uh, this is why it took them so long. Yes. Um, but anyway, a lot is coming down the pike, and uh, we think we've updated you as far as we can for this month. Um, we'll take our last short break, and when we return, we'll discuss an interesting dissent by a federal appellate court judge explaining bisexuality uh, to his colleagues. See. All right, we are back to wrap up our Of note segment for this episode. By a two-to-one vote, a panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, back in the Seventh Circuit, uh, affirmed a decision by the Board of Immigration Appeals to deny relief under the Convention Against Torture to a Jamaican man who claims to be bisexual. This led to a strong dissent by Judge Richard Posner. Can you tell us what he said, Art?
1: Yeah, Judge Posner has become... Surprisingly, a great champion of LGBT rights. Uh, He was appointed to the Seventh Circuit by uh, Ronald Reagan, and he hasn't taken senior status because he just loves the job, and he just churns out those opinions. Well, he has become really outspoken, and he says, just a minute, just a minute. The immigration judge here seems to think – that because this guy was married to a woman at some point, he couldn't be bisexual. He doesn't seem to understand what bisexuality is. He says, the weakest part of the immigration judge's opinion is its conclusion that Petitioner is not bisexual, a conclusion premised on the fact that he's had sexual relations with women, including a marriage. Apparently, the immigration judge does not know the meaning of bisexual. The fact that he refused even to believe there is hostility to bisexuals in Jamaica suggests a closed mind and gravely undermines his critical finding The petitioner is not bisexual. Uh, It's very well documented. The State Department uh, human rights reports make it clear that life is precarious for LGBT people in Jamaica. There is extreme prejudice. And in fact, ironically, uh, just shortly before this opinion, there was an opinion by the Second Circuit reversing a BIA decision saying, hey, guys, the evidence on Jamaica is pretty strong. Uh, It seems the Board of Immigration Appeals has this view that it hasn't been proven yet that things are too terrible for gay people or bisexual people to deport them back to Jamaica. Uh, Part of the complication in these cases is these cases tend to come up where someone has had criminal charges in the U.S. So they can't uh, ask for asylum, and they've usually missed the deadline for that anyway. They can't uh, go for withholding of removal because they've been convicted on some kind of drug-inflated drug felony charge, uh, although they, they may be serious you know, criminal charges in these cases, the only relief open to them is the Convention Against Torture. They have to show it's more likely than not that if they were sent back, they would be tortured. Uh, and in Jamaica, it's not so hard to make that case based on the documentation we have. But a lot of these people are pro se – they have a difficult time representing themselves. They don't necessarily have access to uh, the kind of documentation that you need. Uh, Posner points out the ridiculousness of, of this. He says, how is he supposed to prove he's bisexual? What of the likelihood that his former same-sex sexual partners in Jamaica are going to go on the record and testify for him when their lives may be at issue in Jamaica, right. if it becomes known that they're associated with him in any way? He says, and it's a small island. If they send this guy back, the word is going to spread really quickly. His life is going to be in danger. This is not right. Uh, and, uh, you know, Posner was very forceful in his dissent. Uh, I I don't know if the petitioner here can put together an on-bank uh, petition or whether it will get him anywhere. I mean,
0: interestingly, but, the, uh, the judge who wrote the majority opinion was one of the – shortlisted uh, candidates to be an Obama Supreme Court nominee. So yeah, it's strange. So it's odd that Judge uh, Posner was not able to get her on board. But, yeah. um, you know.
1: Well, it's not always predictable based yeah. on who nominates whom. Right, right, How right. they're going to go in any particular case. Yep.
0: All right. That's all the time we have today. Thank you for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.legal.org. org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you enjoy the podcast. Follow the gal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in October.